Revelation chapter number one, we have been going book by book through the Bible on Wednesday nights, and we started probably about 10 years ago in Genesis, I'm just joking, uh, we started probably uh, about a year ago in, in a little over that in Genesis, and now we're in the book of the Revelation, and uh, the last book of our Bible, amazing scripture, and um, it's one of those books that people are told, stay away from that one, that's spooky. But that's not what God says. Look at verse number three, would you? Chapter one, verse number three of Revelation. Let's see what the Lord says about it. Would you read the first word it says in verse three? Blessed. Blessed is he that does what? Readeth. And they that? The words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. He says, instead of being afraid of it, you should run to it. (laughs) Instead of avoiding it, you should get to it. How many would like to live a blessed life? Amen. The book of the Revelation is a book that uh, God gives us uh, that tells us a lot about what are happening and things to come. The book was written probably in A.D. 95. John the Beloved, one of the youngest disciples, he was probably a teenager when he followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now all of the other disciples have by now passed away, all of which probably were killed for their cause, for the cause of Christ. Paul is gone, Peter's gone, James, everybody has already passed off the scene. John has been the pastor of the church at Ephesus for many years, and he's someone who don't, no doubt ministered not only to Ephesus, but to these other churches of Asia Minor in that same region. And, uh, but it's AD 95, he has been exiled on the island of Patmos, and he has uh, probably been preaching the gospel, and so to shut him up, Uh, They couldn't, and the Lord didn't let his life go away. And by the way, um, no one dies. Um, Maybe people, no one dies. You might say you die young, but no one dies early. (laughs) Uh, It's appointed a man wants to die. Yeah, you're going to die, and whenever your appointment is, you'll be there. (laughs) You can miss your dentist appointment, your BMV appointment. You won't miss your appointment with death. You'll be there when it happens, and it will not be premature. It might be young, but it will not be early. God knows when that's going to be. And if he knows when to bring Jesus to this world, he knows when to take us home. He tells us in Psalms 116, precious in the sight of the Lord, the death of his saints. The Lord let him live a long life. And he was very close to Jesus. And something we can learn from John the Beloved is you can get close to Jesus you want to. And he called himself a disciple whom? Jesus loved. Did he love all of his disciples? Sure, John felt a bond. Why? Because John loved him. He's the one who wrote, we love him because he first loved us. And on that island of Patmos, he probably thought, man, I can't be a good soul winner out here. There's nobody out here. (laughs) I'm here on this island, uh, probably maybe not only by himself, but certainly secluded from most civilization. But it was there that the Lord Jesus gave him uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of John, it's the revelation of Jesus. And he says, I'm going to tell you three things. I'm going to tell you about things that were, things that are, and things that shall be hereafter. And so he divides the, the book into that category. Things that were, and particularly speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 is all about Jesus. Things that are, he's going to talk about seven churches. 
And he's going to give him a letter to the churches. And he says, look, the Lord's got something to say to all of these churches. He's going to mention seven of them. The church at Ephesus. And they were a great church, but they were a loveless church. They had lost their shine. They were soul winning. They were knowledgeable the scriptures. They stood for the right, but love was missing. They were not doing what they were doing for the cause of love. He said, man, you've left your first love. You're doing things only out of duty. You're not doing it because you love it. They were a loveless church. Then the church of Smyrna, a great church, no reprimand there, but they were going through persecution and they were a lowly church. The church of Pergamos, uh, this church right here was really, um, they were a, a loosey-goosey church. They were letting stuff slide. They started to get worldly. They were loose. And the Lord had something to tell them. Church at Pergamos. Church of Thyatira, lawless church. Even allowing that Jezebel to, to influence the work of the Lord there. And he had something to tell them. And he goes on to the church of Sardis in chapter 3. And the church of Sardis was a church where they had a name that they were alive, but they were dead. You couldn't find the truth there with a flashlight. They had a sign on the, on, on, out front and but really nothing going on inside. He said, there are a few folks who still have life in them. But very By the way, almost in every uh, apostate church, you'll find somebody with some light on inside of them. There are a few. You can look down, you go down Holman Avenue of our city or go down someplace and you'll see this church. Oftentimes in those churches that, are, that have already almost dead, there's somebody in there that has a little bit of life. Someone's truly saved. Someone is hung on in that situation. He said, if you got that, you ought to wake up and get going because you're lifeless. Then he talks about the church of Philadelphia. And that was a church that, that uh, was a loyal church to the Lord. It's there, of all seven churches he talked to, five of them had issues that he dealt with directly. Two of them... Smyrna and Philadelphia, he didn't really have a lot of negative to say about them. One was lowly and persecuted. The other one was small but faithful. And then the church, uh, the last church, and of course that's the uh, church of the Laodicea, and they were lukewarm. They were not hot, were not cold. And he said, I'm just so frustrated, I want to spew you out of my mouth. He said, I, when, I come, when it comes to you, you're just frustrating because you're just apathetic. You're in the middle. You think you can see, but you're blind as a bat. You think you get all that in a bag of chips and you're nice clothes, but you're naked. He said, you think, you're, you think you're doing good, and that's where we find that. Several ways to look at those seven churches. Some folks choose to look at them only in the stages of the, of the church since Jesus went back to heaven and that kind of thing, and I think that's, that's applicable, and I can understand that. I would choose to say that probably every church you know would somewhere fit in those categories. Loveless, lowly, persecuted, having a hard time. Loosey-goosey, like the church of Pergamos. Lawless, just no rules, just right, like the church of Thyatira. Dead, lifeless, loyal and faithful, but small, or lukewarm. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in any of those other categories, but if I have to be in the lowly church, and the loyal church, I'd rather be in Philadelphia, quite frankly. I'm allergic to pain. I don't want any persecution, you know. But if that comes, we need to take it, but I want to be a loyal church. You know how you can be a part of a loyal church? Be a loyal Christian. <laughs> be faithful to the Lord. So he's going to tell them a little bit about things that are. And then in chapter 4, verse number 1, till chapter 19 and verse number 10, he's going to begin to describe the tribulation period. What's going to happen after Jesus comes 
to receive his own. There are many theological discussions and disagreements about when the Lord is going to come back. Our church holds to it, and I would do that too, and and that is a pre-trib rapture. That means Jesus coming and then the tribulation is coming. I'm not interested in even figuring out other stuff beyond that. I see we see that, and there are several things I think that you can see that are obvious signs of the tribulation period. But during chapter 4 to chapter 19, verse 10, the Lord is going to squeeze society and this world as we know it until they say uncle. (laughs) He is going to start straining them down the funnel of his wrath, and he's going to begin to bring this world back into dominance. This world right now, obviously, God is sovereign. He can smash us whenever he wants to. He can do whatever he wants to do, and he does with regularity. However, He's, the world has a lot of liberty to do things. In those seven years, he's going to strain them down into a funnel of God's wrath and bring them into submission and set up this world for his son to rule. It's going to be a seven-year process, and you can just, he describes a seven-year process in chapter 4 of Revelation to chapter number 19 of the Revelation. And then Revelation 19.11, he'll begin to describe a little bit about uh, the thousand-year reign, the ultimate judgment of the great white throne judgment. That's when people are resurrected who rejected Jesus Christ, and they'll be judged for their sins. And uh, then he offers a final invitation at the conclusion of this book. It's a wonderful book of the Bible. I, I can't tell you I understand it completely. There's some things that I scratch my head on. It's one, if not the most quoted book in the New Testament that quotes the Old Testament. 184 times in the book of the Revelation, it quotes the Old Testament. There are 39 Old Testament books. 24 of the books are quoted in the book of the Revelation. So, obviously, John the Beloved was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, but he certainly had a knowledge of the Old Testament. And Daniel is certainly in there, Ezekiel's in there, Deuteronomy's in there, Genesis is in there. There are just reference after reference of Old Testament Scripture. It's packed full of the Old Testament. And so it's a very rich book of the Bible, somewhat confusing sometimes, and I would not say understand it. And sometimes the more you read about it, the more confused you get. Uh, you know, you heard that verse of Scripture and a multitude of counselors or you know, there's safety, and there's also confusion in multitude of counselors. If you get too many people in that, in that arena, you get a little confused about it. But I do like to just stay with the simple, what we know about the Bible. Let's look at the key verses, I would say, in chapter 1, verse number 18 and 19. And uh, John is describing Jesus, and Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive, how long? Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. And he says to John, write these things which ye have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And read verse number 20 with me, would you please? The mystery of the seven stars, which thou saw in night, and the seven golden candlesticks. All right, very good. If you want to look at your worksheet, let me give you a little bit of thoughts here, if I can. First of all, the outline, Jesus. Chapter 1 is about his person, his character, and his work uh, in our world. And you'll see so many references. He's a faithful witness. He's the king of kings. He's, he's the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. You'll see all those things uh, referenced there. We're talking about chapter 1 is all about the things that were and that what John knew. John knew Jesus. 
He had walked with him. He had touched him. His hands had handled the word of life. He spoke about that. So he's seeing about Jesus. Now, he did have Jesus uh, at that present time, but Jesus was in heaven, and he was gone from him. So he's kind of thinking the things that were in the person of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 is about Jesus, but it's his possession. And that is the local church. He, he references seven churches that I've kind of gone over there. And that's the things that are. Those are things that are present that he's talking about and, and things that he has something to say. When he, when he approaches a church, there's several things he gives. When you look at those churches, number one, I, I would suggest you give a personal application. A personal application. Number two, you would find a practical exhortation. You'll find that whenever you're doing that and you, you see that that Jesus walks in there like he owns the place. Guess what? He does. <laughs> yeah, this church isn't your church. It's not mine. It's his. And he says, you know, I'm going around seeing what's going on here. This church is dead. It's lifeless. This church is loosey-goosey. This is not a mirror of the way my holiness is supposed to be. This is the same as a, a disco joint. I'm not sure if disco is even popular nowadays. I don't know. There's nothing different between the holy and the profane. He says, yeah, man, you guys are doing pretty good, but I don't, I don't think you really love me. I think you're doing it because you have to. You're doing it because you, because you, you, know, you get a pat in the back or a kick in the pants. There's, there's no love here. What's going on? He comes in and he checks out his possession, the local church. And by the way, every church needs to remember that Jesus is its head. You ever saw someone, and there are no doubt people here that had a stroke. One of the challenges with a stroke is once you have a stroke, part of your body doesn't respond to your head. And you may want your foot to do something, it doesn't do it. You want your hand to extend, and it won't. You might do one like this, but the other one won't. I think many churches are that way, many members are that way. God has a desire for you to do, but there's a disconnect. He says, look, I, 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 uh, he, this, this is about things that are. And he said, this is my possession, the local church. So you look at it practical, uh, personally to apply it, practically to be exhorted by it. Then lastly, on that, the letter C, it has prophetic perspectives. And you'll see that each time he approaches the church, he tells them, let me give you some prophecy that you need to look forward to uh, for those who overcome. Look at verse uh, number three there, Jesus and his program. As a heavenly view of future events, God shares with John a heavenly view of what's going to happen in the future. Most of the book of the Revelation has not happened yet, and it is still in our future. And it will happen after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then it will usher in a tribulation period. And I'm glad for those who are saved, you'll be in heaven with God when that takes place. But there are some very distinct things that will happen in the tribulation period, and I'll give you seven of them tonight that's in your, in your notes here. Look, if you would, please, the quick outline. Things that shall be hereafter. The beginning of sorrows, chapters 4 through 11. The beast of the earth, and um, that is the Antichrist, and he has about, I guess, 27 different names that he is referred to throughout the Bible, but uh, beast is one of them. And uh, I don't know, some people believe that the Antichrist is alive at this very moment. And that he feels like that Satan, and uh, just like God is a, uh, is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, 
in, in the, the demonic realm, there is a triune as well. There is the Antichrist, um, and there is the false prophet. And he said, and, and, and he's, he's, given, he's given the triune uh, purpose there. Uh, many people believe that the Antichrist is alive as we speak. Other people believe that, he is, that Satan always has someone, because he doesn't know when Jesus is coming back. He's not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. So he says that some folks believe that in every age, Satan has someone ready to take over. But I'm just telling you, friend, the more you read the Bible, and as I read the book of Revelation in preparation for this, I just feel like we can stop looking for signs and start listening for a shout. <laughs> because it's closer now than it's ever been. And you should say, well, I just want to wait till the Lord comes. No, you ought to occupy till he comes. It ought to put some, a little bit of proverbial uh, kick in the pants for you and say, hey, i got to do something for the Lord. I need to, if I'm going to build a Sunday class, I might as well do it now. If I'm going to work on a bus route, I might as well do it. If I'm going to soul winning, I might as well do it now. I'm going to give out that gospel track, I might as well do it. If I'm going to give, do your giving while you're living so you know it's where it's going. You know, let's get, let's get going. Let's do what we can do for the Lord. Why? We're awaiting his arrival. And it, we are, I think we live in the imminent return of Christ. And I don't know if there's an antichrist alive right now. Uh, many of you believe he'll come out of Europe, and I don't, you know, once again, some of those folks who've written books about that, they're dead and gone, and so is their idea. But um, at the same time, I do believe that what God said is exactly true, and he's, uh, he's showing us that this is the case. The next thing is the Battle of Armageddon. You'll find that in chapters 19, 20, and then the beauty of God's plan, uh, chapter 21 and 22, you see that. Here's a couple observations of the tribulation period. And of course, there's no way in 30 minutes I can share with you, and I would not even probably have the expertise to do that. In the Bible Institute, Brother Vargo is going to take 17 weeks and walk through the book of the Revelation in a pictorial way. And I would encourage you, those of you members of our church, take the Bible Institute class and take that. And you take that one, you get another one for free, take that and get enrolled in that. I think that's a 7 o'clock class, a great class. I don't know anybody can teach it quite like Brother Vargo can. And God's given him a real gift there, making difficult things simple. But I think it's going to be a very good thing. But here's a couple things we'll find, observations of the tribulation. Number one, you're going to see the unleashing of God's anger. The anger of God is going to be revealed. And I think it's going to be a fury that uh, no one has ever seen before. As a matter of fact, some folks said they're going to ask the rocks to cry out and fall on them. They just want to get out of this misery. It's going to be a very serious time, and it's going to unleash the, the, the anger of God. I want you to notice number two is the absence of the church. Churches are men churches mentioned, and then in chapter 4, verse 1, till chapter 9, verse 10, no mention of the church. That's why I'm a pre-tribulational believer. I believe the church is gone. And I'm in the church. So the church is out of there. It's not mentioned for those 16 chapters because it's not there. It's one of the biggest proofs, in my opinion, that, that the Lord's going to spare us from the wrath to come. His wrath is going to be poured out on this world, and the church is not going to be going to happen. He's going to be enjoying our Savior and the marriage supper of the Lamb for those seven years and going through the, great, the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ during that time. So we find that one of, the, one of the things we find about the tribulation period is, number one, the anger of God. Number two, the absence of the church. Number three, you'll see the Antichrist in power. The Antichrist is going to begin to, uh, to, to begin to assume power. 
He's going to have to figure out something to do. He's going to mitigate. He's going to probably mitigate the Muslim world some way because he's going to use the peace treaties that have been done throughout the years and, and confirm them, it looks like the Bible says, and put them together. And so he'll seem to be a friend of the Jews and a friend of the Israelites. And they're going to build their temple. And, and then three and a half years into it, he's going to uh, exercise the abomination of, of, of desolation, abomination there. Abomination, that's the next thing. Uh, or excuse me, uh, the abomination of desolation. And we'll see that. And then number five, and that's going to really start the, the turn up here. You're going to find the awakening of the Jewish nation. As you look at the World War I, it was a Jewish man who learned to come up with, uh, with um, synthetic um, explosives. After World War I, it was where that I think that the Union decided to give Israel its land back. They had been many years nomads. And they didn't have a country, didn't have a land. And their land now is not the size of Rhode Island. It's very small, but it is a lot larger than that probably in Bible times. But nonetheless, uh, they got their land. But when they got their land, they got their body of a nation, they had no interest in going back there. Their thinking, their feelings, their desires were not to go back to this place where they had just had nomads running around with sheep and goats and cattle, and, and uh, just it was, a, it was a desolate area for the most part. And just, just, uh, just uh, moving cattlemen was just taking over. So they had property, but they had no interest. Their soul was not to go back. World War II changed that. World War II... They got interest in going back after having to deal with Hitler and uh, all the, uh, the terrible atrocities were there in Austria. They didn't want to leave their nice homes in Austria and Germany and Russia and, and over there. They had no interest in doing that. They had great places and good businesses. Why would you want to go leave that and go to this piece of property that is desolate? World War II changed that. After that, they said, let me get out of Austria. I wish we got out earlier. I wish we left early and went through the Holocaust. But even though Israel has and miraculously has a body since 1948 and a country and they have, they have people moving back there and living there, they still their spirit is not awakened to Christ. He came into his own and the own didn't accept him. And even to this day, I thank God for missionaries who go to Israel, but they do not have great stories of great revival. They're winning one and two people, but it's challenging. It's tough, especially to get a Jewish person or someone who is orthodox, and God is still saving the Jew, and we should still witness to them. And I'm glad that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes it, to the Jew first and also to the... Well, God wants us. If you ever see a Jewish person, tell them you love them. God loves them. Tell them that you're so grateful. You pray for their country. I hope you do that. I hope you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I hope you pray for Israel. You have interest there. And if you can get a chance, I remember one time talking to a Jewish dentist, and, and uh, I said, sir, I, I tell you what, I, I, have anyone ever showed you in the Bible how we can have eternal life? He said, no. Boy, I went to the gospel, and that guy got so nervous. His hands started sweating. He was rubbing his hands. He goes, I got to talk to my rabbi. I got to talk to my rabbi. I said, I said, well, I, I said, is there anything you don't understand? I go, I understand. What I understand, I need to do this. But I need to talk to my rabbi. I'm going to meet him every morning at 530. So I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. I said, 
I said, well, I'm going to give you something to read and consider because you need to believe Jesus. And he's, boy, he had conviction. He was so convicted. By the way, the gospel will bring conviction to anybody. Do that to a Hindu person. Do that to a Jewish person. Do that to a Muslim person. They tell you, I'm just not that. Has anyone ever showed you from the Bible how you could be saved? Just show them. Let the gospel blow up in their heart. But I will tell you that the nation of Israel has, and Jewish people around the world as a, as a whole, have rejected Jesus. We have former Jews, we have Jewish people here that have accepted Christ in this room. And rejoice with that. And I've had the joy to lead several Jewish people to Christ. And I thank God for that. However, as a whole, they have not. I think the tribulation period is a time where God is going to draw miraculously Jews to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you're going to see awakening of the Jews to the Messiah. It'll be, it'll, they'll, they'll, they'll be killed, they'll be martyred, there'll be uh, all kinds of pressure going on there, but many uh, Jewish people will come to know Christ, I think, during the, uh, the tribulation period. Of course, you'll send out 144 evangelists. The two uh, prophets will be slain in the street, laying dead. Everybody will see them. That's something that years ago you wonder how are 100 years ago, how is everybody going to see two men laying dead in the streets? Does anybody have an idea how that might happen today? Yeah, for our ancestors, they're like, I don't know how that's going to happen. We know how that could happen. Very quick, they're not even going to bury their bodies. They're going to make them, make them a spectacle. And it'll be on every news feed you got that these two, these two prophetic men from God have, have been slaughtered and killed. And here their dead bodies lay on the streets, and the whole world's going to see it. We can see that coming down. But there's going to be an awakening of the Jews uh, they'll be right in, in an annihilation of the world. God's going to deal with the world. There'll be an annihilation, and God's going to bring this world into captivity and prepare it for the 1,000-year the reign. And then lastly, Armageddon. A couple lessons to learn. We'll quickly give these to you. Number one, God is in control. And history is? It's his story. That's right. I'm glad I serve a God who's providential. He's sovereign. And his person, his power, and his plan are forever uh, wonderful. Number two, and by the way, you can figure that if, if, you, if you can read the Revelation, you can see that God has got this all together. Guess what else he's got together? He's got your life together. <laughs> you can trust him with your future. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. God's already there. He tells us, take no thought of tomorrow. Take no thought of finances. Take no thought of, of where you're going to eat, what you're going to put on. Take no thought of tomorrow. He goes, I'm already there. I got that figured out for you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and? Uh, Dr. Penns told us that was his favorite verse today, and it blessed me when I saw that. Look, if you would please, number two, Jesus is the main character. Jesus is the main character, and the question is, is he the main character in our life? Okay, and I, I uh, if we spend some time together, you'll find that out about me, and I'll find that out about you. I could see your phone. You could see my phone. We could see if Jesus is a main character. Do we even put J-E-S-U-S on any of our texts today? Did we say his name one time, two times, eight times, 20 times? Did we put him in any emails? Did we speak his name? You talk about things you love. That's why we sometimes don't talk about Jesus. And I want to tell you something. He ought to be asking. You, to, you, you look at how God used Apostle Paul. He didn't say that Jesus is my hobby. He said, when Christ, who is my life, I am crucified with Christ. He reminds me, for me to live is 
Yeah, well, he, he can't hardly say three verses without putting Jesus in there. How many sentences can you say? <laughs> Have you go a day, two days, a couple hours? How long does it take you to come up with the words Jesus, Christ, our Lord? I have a Jewish friend that came to know Christ as his Savior. And he doesn't say the Lord. He, he doesn't say Jesus. He always says, and anytime he references God, he says, my Lord Jesus Christ. And he's a very wealthy businessman and just it puts people back on their heels. Whenever someone's cussing, he says, you know, I just love my Lord Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> people get a little nervous just, just to that name. There's power in the name. The name of the Lord's a strong tower. The righteous run into it and say, He's the main character of Revelation. He's the main character of the Bible. He's the way, he's the truth, and the life. Is he your main character? That's a good question for us. Convicting, isn't it? Look at the next one. If you can, please. God is still calling sinners on the last page of our Bible. I want you to turn there if we can as we conclude our Bible study tonight. Revelation chapter 22. Would you all look there, if you would, please? Get a pencil in hand. It's a beautiful testimony. Before he closes out the scriptures, I think one of God's favorite words is come, come. Let's look, if we can please, at chapter 20, 22. And let's look first of all at verse number uh, 12. Can you read it with me? You ready? And behold, I and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. So first of all, he says, I'm coming and I got a reward for you. Is eternal life a reward? Yeah, it's a gift, isn't it? Salvation is a gift. Service for the Lord is, a, is going to be rewarded. He said, I'm coming. I come back. And salvation, no one earns eternal life. The secret of eternal life is to learn that it cannot be earned. But there's a good reason why you ought to behave yourself. You ought to forgive someone that's hurt you. You ought to make sure that you don't, uh, don't spend a lot of time in bitterness, that you're faithful about the things of God, because uh, there's a reward. Even going through troubles... James 1, verse number 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Sometimes you think, man, my life's been so rough, I've just had a lot of troubles. Enduring troubles is a rewarded process. Looking to Jesus, getting his wisdom, trusting him for it, counting all joy for the patience that God's put in, there's a reward for that. There's a reward for shepherding people. This is why you want to do a good job in your Sunday school class. Sunday school teachers, let me encourage you, get to the uh, Sunday school teachers meeting with Brother Keith, 6.30 on, Sunday, on Wednesday nights. If you're a teacher, you ought to be in there. You ought to be all in in that class. That's a good, good meeting. It's a much better meeting when all, the, uh, all the, the team's in the huddle and everybody's there at practice and going over the lesson and learning a few things and staying on the same page. But you ought to get serious about teaching that class. Love the Lord. Grow that class. Ask God to help you. Because uh, these are things that will be rewarded. But let's look at verse number 17. Can we please? And I love this. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, And let him that heareth say, And let him that is a thirst, And whosoever will, Let him take of the water of life freely. Before God closes out the Bible, He says, Listen, Anybody out there want to come? Come. I have a man, I, I think, He probably had some demon possession. But he scheduled an appointment with me and several months ago, and he said, you know what? I don't like it at the invitation time. I said, how come? He goes, because you always say, come. You say, come, come. I said, nothing gets me more fired up than when you say, come. And I think, boy, have you came? 
I said, why, why does that bother you so much? I'm encouraging people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If they need to get baptized, to come. Why are you so ticked off about that? So I just don't like it. I don't know what it is, but it really bothers me. I wish you would stop saying that every invitation. And I think it's one of God's favorite words, don't you think? He says, come unto me, all the laboring, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He tells us in Isaiah, come, enjoy it freely. And he wants people, and by the way, if we're like Jesus, we'll say the same word, won't we? Come. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight without Jesus, I hope you won't leave without Jesus. If you're a child of God, I hope you'll be encouraged with the person of Jesus Christ. His person, his possession, the local church, and his plan for the future events. And uh, we can trust him. Let's pray together, can we?